This week on Making Contact. $50 for birth control could be the difference between paying my light bill and getting birth control. And when it comes down to it, I'm going to pay my light bill. Attacks on reproductive health services for women are on the increase. And the economic climate means more than ever, it's poor women and women of color who have the most to lose. If we choose to have an abortion, we're criticized. But white America will equally criticize us if we choose to have a child. <laughs> so we're damned if we do, damned if we don't. On this edition, from Congress to your state legislature to the billboards you see by the highway, American women and girls struggle to maintain their reproductive freedom. I'm Kyungjin Lee, and this is Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. If you live in Atlanta, L.A., or many other urban hubs across the U.S., you might have already seen the billboards. The most dangerous place for an African-American is in the womb. Black children are an endangered species. And most recently, fatherhood begins in the womb. Those are the catchphrases used by groups like the Radiance Foundation and Issues for Life. The billboards feature images of beautiful black babies and pregnant women. African-American women are almost five times as likely to have abortions as white women, according to the Guttmacher Institute, a reproductive health research group. And the provocative billboard campaign is designed to convince African-Americans that aborting black babies is tantamount to genocide. Like-minded groups have produced films and glossy commercials with the same message. I do not join in the belief that the African is our equal in brain or in heart. We are paying for and even submitting to the dictates of an ever-increasing, unceasingly spawning class of human beings who never should have been born at all. The only way possible of decreasing Negro population is by means of controlling fertility. Birth control facilities could be extended relatively more to Negroes than to whites, since Negroes are more concentrated in the lower income and education classes. We hope that the restraint of population growth can come about through voluntary means. But if it does not, involuntary methods will be used. For all their failures, what the eugenics movement had accomplished was to lay the foundation for the next phase of their plan. And this is where they would find the success that they had been chasing for over 100 years. Reverend Walter Hoy is the founder of Issues for Life Foundation, one of the groups leading the billboard campaign. He says in order to counteract the conspiracy to eliminate African Americans, churches need to do a better job meeting the needs of women and children. Uh, oftentimes, a black woman will stop me and, and talk about her need for education, her need for a better job. Oftentimes, she talks to me about emotional support, support from her family, support from her boyfriend, uh, support from uh, her church even. Reverend Hoy says the impetus for the campaign was to start a discussion in his community. But Northwestern University law professor Dorothy Roberts suggests a different cause for the black community's high rates of abortion. Whenever we ask why does a woman seek an abortion, it has to do with an unwanted pregnancy. And so the bottom line is black women have more unwanted pregnancies and the reason has to do with not having good access to contraception and overall 
uh, health care. They're trying to make black women feel ashamed about our choices. That's Loretta Ross, the national coordinator for Sister Song, Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective, a network of reproductive health organizations. She says the message is a fallacy. You cannot save black babies by attacking black women. It just doesn't work. Professor Dorothy Roberts says the billboard campaign distorts and exploits history. That's what's so twisted about this campaign is that they're claiming to be challenging genocide when they're actually using the very concepts of devaluing black women, regulating black women's reproduction, and blaming black women for social problems. And so to me, there's more of a similarity between eugenic ideology and the billboards than there is the billboards opposing eugenics. Ross says for black women, it's often a no-win situation. If we choose to have an abortion, we're criticized. But white America will equally criticize us if we choose to have a child (laughs) and accuse us of overbreeding, overpopulating the earth, not controlling our children, ruining the educational system. So we're damned if we do, damned if we don't. Ross, from Sister Song, says anti-abortion activists often don't realize the difficult choices women face. Frankly, I'm a woman who at 14 became pregnant through incest. I was not voluntary at all, okay? At the time my son was born, and I had to carry that pregnancy to term because it was pre-Roe, 1969, I had the option of giving my child up for adoption. I found that I couldn't do it. I took one look at his face and I couldn't do it. So I ended up parenting that kid and I'm glad I had him. I'm glad I parented him. But at the same time, anyone who acts like it's just so easy to carry a child to term, give birth, and then just hand the baby over to somebody else, obviously has never done it. And the women I've talked to who have done it often regret having done it even more so than these so-called women who regret their abortions. And so it's a scheme designed to make black women feel guilty. It builds on the fantasy of adoption being easy. And it ignores the fact that something like four out of five children in adoption agencies that are hard to place are African-American. In response to the billboard campaign, a group of black reproductive justice organizations formed a partnership to promote their own message, trust black women, meaning they should be trusted to make decisions about their own reproductive lives. Black women do not kill black people. Racism kills black people. Black women do not kill black people. Racism kills black people. They staged protests, written op-eds, and produced a video to counter the claims that black women are committing genocide in their own community. Loretta Ross, a member of Trust Black Women, says while there is agreement that historically certain women have been encouraged to have children while other groups of women have been discouraged, ultimately it's about control. I think the best way to fight genocide is to make sure that the objects of that genocide or that control make those decisions for themselves. So I think black women need not only the right to have an abortion, but the access, the money, the conditions under which they can decide their fertility for themselves. 
While overall availability to reproductive health services has increased over the past 20 years, access has declined dramatically for low-income women and women of color, says Susan Cohen, Director of Government Affairs at the Guttmacher Institute. In 2006, we've documented that poor women had an unintended pregnancy rate five times that of higher-income women and an unintended birth rate six times as high as higher-income women. What that tells us, just those statistics alone, women whose lives are less stable because they're younger, because they're poorer, or because they're less educated, have higher rates of unplanned pregnancies, unwanted births, and abortions. Cohen says the rate of unintended pregnancy for poor women is troubling, and considering attempts to defund family planning centers, such as Planned Parenthood, as well as the current economic climate, access is likely to become more difficult for these communities. A lot more people losing their jobs, losing their health insurance along with that, and with the cost of contraceptives and services going up, um, it's increasingly difficult for women to be able to afford the services they need or to prioritize these services when they've got so many other competing demands on them to support their kids, to buy clothing, to pay for food, to pay rent, whatever it may be. I had my daughter in um, 2005, and it was about 2006 when I got pregnant again, and I had an abortion. 25-year-old Nicole Gross is a full-time student from the south side of Chicago. She decided to get an abortion when she got pregnant again a year after becoming a single mom. I was working. Uh, a job at a restaurant. I was getting like 40 hours a week, but I still couldn't afford nothing. And I just knew that that was what I wanted to do because I already had one child. I was struggling to take care of that one. And it wasn't just a choice for me. I believe that it was a choice for her too because if I'm barely making it for two, why would I bring in three? And now everything that has to be split between two has to be split between three, which means that she would have to sacrifice some certain things too. And I didn't tell nobody because I didn't want nobody manipulating my situation, you know, my decision. She says the decision to terminate her second pregnancy wasn't difficult because she had already considered an abortion with her first one. My first daughter, when I got pregnant with her, I actually wanted to have an abortion, but I didn't because people manipulated my decision. They were like, oh, no, don't do that, you know. I had told my mom, like, I want to have an abortion, and she was like, oh, you know, you can die, you know, getting that or whatever. And, you know, they just gave me, like, this horrible story about a claw being stuck up your vagina and (laughs) crushing the baby's head and... You know, saying all of this, and I wasn't as educated about the situation as I am now. So, a young and 19 and not knowing anything, I was like, oh, I don't want to do that. (laughs) You know, I was like, oh, that sounds horrible. I don't want to do that. And the father was like, you know, I'm going to help and I'm going to support and I'm going to do whatever it takes to take care of you and the baby. And five years later, I mean, he's not around. And I have to do everything myself. When I get up in the morning and I get dressed, I got to get somebody else dressed before I get out the door. If I want to go out somewhere, 
I got to make sure that I got somebody to watch her before I go here, or I can't work certain hours because I have to be home to get her. And to have another child would just be like too much. I had other things that I need to accomplish in life. Don't get me wrong, I wouldn't send my daughter back for the world. I love her, that's just, you know, my sunlight. <laughs> but. Like I said, my first decision was manipulated because I thought people were going to see me through and, you know, support me the way that I needed to be supported. And I found out that, you know, people would tell you anything to get you to do what they want you to do. And at the end of the day, whatever decision I make, it affects me the most. Gross says she never got sex education in school and didn't have access to birth control. My mom talk about sex was don't do it. If you get pregnant, you're getting kicked out of my house. You know, I never was like, you need to get on birth control. You need to inquire about that. And being 19 and young, I wasn't thinking about that because I didn't think that it was going to happen to me. In 2008, almost 36 million women needed contraceptive services, a 6% increase from 2000, according to the Guttmacher Institute. The majority of the spike came from women of color. During the same period, the need for government-subsidized contraception rose 10 percent. And given the increase in poverty in the U.S., the highest number since record-keeping began more than 50 years ago, that figure is likely to grow. We're human beings just like everybody else. We need access to these things just like everybody else. Nicole Gross. People are always making snide remarks or, oh, you know, why are their pregnancy rates high? It's because we don't have the access to things that everybody else have. And $50 for birth control could be the difference between paying my light bill and getting birth control. And when it comes down to it, I'm gonna pay my light bill. I'm not gonna go get no birth control because I'm, I need something for right now. I can't take my pill in the dark. <laughs> you know, if I go home and my lights off, my food gonna be ruined. You know what I'm saying? So. We don't have that access, and it's something that's just very, very needed. We take birth control so much for granted that, um, that sometimes we don't even think about the fact that this is really challenging for women who have a lot of other challenges that they're facing in their lives. The Guttmacher Institute's Susan Cohen. And unlike an acute health condition where you take your antibiotics and you can take care of the illness that you're suffering from, and then it goes away, Birth control isn't treating an illness. It is preventing a condition of pregnancy that a woman needs to be able to control for herself. And that requires a lot of resources and um, commitment and support. We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. If you'd like more information or for CD copies of this program, please call 800-529-5736. Because of listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact.
When Republicans took over the U.S. House of Representatives in 2010, reproductive rights advocates began bracing themselves. Anti-abortion activists were emboldened and have been pushing hard to deny access to many basic services. In February 2011, the House voted to cut public funding from Planned Parenthood, the largest reproductive health provider in the U.S. While federal attempts to defund Planned Parenthood ultimately failed, a number of states took matters into their own hands. In 2011, legislation to cut funding and further restrict access to reproductive care, including abortions, was passed in states such as Indiana, Kansas, Wisconsin, and North Carolina. A controversial abortion bill is on its way to the governor's desk. Yeah, Governor Daniels' signature would make Indiana the first state to cut all government funding to Planned Parenthood. Today, the House voted 66 to 32 to approve the bill. The original measure would prohibit abortions after 20 weeks of pregnancy. It was amended by the Senate to take all taxpayer funding away from Planned Parenthood. The state of Kansas has stepped up its war on abortion providers. This time they granted new powers to the state government to shut down Kansas's clinics. Governor Brownback signed a bill last month that says the secretary of the state's health department gets to write new rules just for abortion clinics, and then he gets to enforce those rules. And if the state's abortion clinics do not meet those new rules, he can shut them down. Planned Parenthood is considering a courtroom challenge to a decision that strips funding from its North Carolina branch. Earlier this week, North Carolina lawmakers approved a measure to cut funding for the group by more than $400,000 because Planned Parenthood performs abortions. Planned Parenthood faces more funding cuts at the state level, this time in Wisconsin. One million of the state's $18 million in funding to the abortion provider was taken out of the state's budget. Pro-life leaders say they applaud the move but want to see the state defund the entire $18 million. Serena Garcia, a member of the sister song Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective, says the attack on these facilities goes much further than how it is often framed as a pro-choice versus pro-life debate. What they're doing is getting rid of access, trying to get rid of access not to abortion singularly, but reproductive health services in general to women who otherwise would not be able to have the access or the agency or the provision to get them. Planned Parenthood critics argue against any taxpayer dollars going to build the group's infrastructure and say that cutting support for all services would limit their ability to perform abortions. What do we need? When do we need it? What do we need? When do we need it? But Planned Parenthood and its supporters didn't take the defeat in Congress lying down. They fought back, organizing rallies and launching online video campaigns. 22-year-old Chloe Hines posted a YouTube video during the Planned Parenthood funding debates to share her story of rape. A warning to our listeners, the following excerpt from Hines' video includes graphic language. When I was 17, I was raped by my boyfriend at the time. I was a virgin who was not particularly comfortable with the idea of having sex yet in general, and I was absolutely not uh, interested in having sex with the man I was dating. 
Having made that explicitly clear to him in various conversations, he developed what I've realized is a rather common blend of entitlement, self-pity, and a generalized hatred of women. He decided to take matters into his own hands. One night, um, I think it was his birthday, he pressured me to drink until I was very, very sick, and he laughed at me while I threw up. Um, his friends held my hair back and ultimately helped me into bed. I don't know what happened in between when I passed out and when I woke up, but I woke to find my pants half removed, um, tangled around my ankles, and my underwear torn down also, with him on top of me and his penis inside of me, uh, with his hand and arm across my chest and neck, uh, holding me down. I was not strong enough or coherent enough to understand exactly what was happening or to physically resist. I did not develop a conscious understanding of what had happened to me for a really long time after that. Um, I really didn't think that far beyond the practical next step, in fact. I, I knew that I was at risk for STIs in pregnancy. I had never been to Planned Parenthood, but suddenly I needed help. Um, when I found the Oneida chapter, Oneida, New York, and I went there requesting STI testing and pregnancy testing, and of course they reminded me that I would have to return for HIV testing in another few months, and I had a couple long conversations with uh, the people there and um, I was given a lot of pamphlets and information. I did not deal with my experience of that night any further for a couple of years. But when I was 20 I was speaking to a, a free school therapist. She got me talking about my experience that night. When I finished she asked me something along the lines of, so how does it feel to know you've been raped? <laughs> I almost laughed. I was in total shock and disbelief. I, I was so offended that she would apply such an ugly word to me. And and suddenly my entire world exploded. It was three years later and it was the most violent psychological experience I've ever had. It was like choking all the time. I, I remember distinctly that feeling of breathlessness for months, a year maybe, I don't know. I had never before made the mental leap required between what I experienced by Adam and that razor-sharp term, rape. I'd never described myself as a rape victim. At that point, I was losing myself. I had no grip and no perspective, and I didn't feel like a person anymore. Ultimately, it was Planned Parenthood that gave me the tools to process that experience and make it a productive element of who I am. I revisited their clinics as a patient and became pretty proactive regarding my sexual health. I began talking about rape publicly. I started talking about my experience of rape to other people on campus, oftentimes in large forums with hundreds of thousands of people, um, and that has never been an easy discussion. But Planned Parenthood provided me with those initial tools to become physically and emotionally healthy enough to move forward with my life. Chloe Hines credits Planned Parenthood for giving her the support she needed in a time of crisis. Without the ability to access comprehensive sexual health care and abortion, I would not be who I am today, and I certainly would not be where I am today. I doubt I would have graduated college, and I truly wonder if I would even be alive. I would not be able to speak to so many other people in the hopes of changing their life, because mine would have been frozen within that instance of assault. When Governor Scott Walker signed legislation cutting $1 million to Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin in June 2011, it became the fourth state in the country to do so. The loss in funding would have affected nine out of the 27 health centers operated by Planned Parenthood, 
which serves 12,000 women without access to health care. The cuts would mostly affect rural communities, where, according to Nicole Safar, public policy director of Planned Parenthood Advocates of Wisconsin, there are no other options for basic reproductive health services. If women are unable to get this basic health care, and if they go without birth control counseling or, or birth control access, um, unintended pregnancies are going to rise. If people go without STD screens, uh, STD rates are going to rise. And we've seen that happen in areas of the state where there isn't a Planned Parenthood, where there just really isn't a provider. Safar says Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin is committed to keeping all of its doors open, thanks in part to continued revenues from clients with private insurance and patient fees. Susan Cohen, Director of Government Affairs at the Guttmacher Institute, says efforts to defund Planned Parenthood are a mere proxy to go after the whole reproductive health care movement. As we see in Congress, for example, the attacks over the last year, the attack was not only to defund Planned Parenthood, but also to eliminate the federal family planning program with or without Planned Parenthood. So they've not really um, made any attempts to be subtle about what the target is here. And that is access to these services for all of us, no matter what provider we go to. The women who they can get at are the low-income women who are most dependent on the federal and state governments for um, subsidizing these services. New anti-abortion legislation continues to be introduced in the Wisconsin State Legislature. And in October 2011, the U.S. House of Representatives passed the Protect Life Act, an amendment to President Obama's health care overhaul. The act would bar federal funds from being used for any portion of the cost of a health care insurance plan that covers abortion. With the ongoing recession, some abortion foes have also made an economic argument for laws which tightly restrict the use of public funds. But Susan Cohen says the money the federal government spends on family planning services ultimately saves money for taxpayers. We've documented that for every dollar invested in family planning services, $4 is saved the next year in Medicaid costs alone for caring for women and their newborns who would otherwise give birth without access to the family planning services to prevent the pregnancies that they say they want to prevent. So not only would it cost the government more than it would save, but obviously it would have a huge negative impact on the lives of the women who are, would become the pawns in this whole political ideological fight. Reproductive rights advocates insist that every woman is entitled to make her own decision whether to have a child and when to have it, and that power must extend to low-income women and women of color as well. Heidi Williamson is the National Advocacy Coordinator for Sister Song, Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective. You should trust black women. We don't kill our children. We love our children. We fight for our children. But we believe in fighting for our children, not just through the nine months to make sure that um, a woman's right to birth justice is ensured. We want to make sure that women have the necessary supports to be good parents, that schools are funded, that health care is offered, that um, women and families are raised out of poverty to be effective mothers, family members, and at large a community. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. 
Partial funding for this program was provided by the Mary Wolford Foundation. Special thanks to Alicia Walters, production intern Lisa Bartfi, and field producer Macon Reed. For a CD copy of this program, call the National Radio Project at 800-529-5736 or check out our website at radioproject.org to get a podcast, download past shows, or make a difference by supporting our work. Like Making Contact on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. I'm Kyungjin Lee. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.